welcome to the 29th episode of Theater Reviews from My Seat. As you can imagine, isolation and closed theaters has significantly curtailed my attendance. I did want to share what I managed to see during the early days of March. Plus, I caught two virtual experiences at the end of the month as artists move their work online. Hopefully I can spread their message and give you a chance to see how this community is continuing their work in this time of crisis. If this is your first time listening, the mission of my blog and this podcast is to share my passion for live theater, review productions without plot spoilers, and hopefully inspire you to try a new play, musical, or theater company. My goal is for you to get a sense of what a particular show is about and why I do or do not recommend it. I am New York City-based, but often review productions elsewhere. I also write reviews for the website Broadway World, but my blog and this podcast chronicle every show I attend. This monthly podcast is available for free subscription on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcast. Simply search for Theater Reviews from My Seat, which is all one word. As I said before, in this episode, I am going to share my observations for shows I attended physically or virtually during the month of March 2020. I'll start with an amazing concert, which was held in the large Temple of Dundur Room in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. I'm going to cover another burlesque extravaganza from Company XIV in Brooklyn. I saw a handful of off-off-Broadway plays. Then my first podcast review of a new show, Monotony the Musical, which couldn't be more perfectly timed as we all hunker down. And a new weekly online series started by The Tank, which is called Cyber Tank. I did also see the musical Six on Broadway this month. It was scheduled to open the night Broadway was shut down. The producers asked for reviews to be held in light of that situation. But I feel like I have to give you at least a simple one-word preview of Six. It's a new musical about the wives of Henry VIII. The word I would choose to tease you with is excellent. As always, you can visit the website for up-to-date or archived posts at www.theaterreviewsformyseat.com. Direct links to this podcast are located on the About This Reviewer page, so you can easily find links to your favorite provider. Now let's take our seats together as I tell you about this month's shows. I'll begin with Nona Hendricks and Disciples of Sun Ra in the Temple. The Temple of Dendur is the only ancient Egyptian temple located in the United States. Housed in the Sackler Wing of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, this 15 BCE creation is an example of a typically pharaonic temple. This magnificent and grandly spacious room was the setting for Nona Hendricks and Disciples of Sun Ra in the temple. It is impossible to imagine a more perfect location for this mystical concert and celebration of the music and philosophies of Sun Ra. Prior to the performance, living futurism sculptures expressively walk through the aisles. Their gracefully elegant and very controlled movements were choreographed by Francesca Harper. 
They wear stunning Afro-Egyptian indigenous costumes created by Virgil Ortiz, which were inspired by the Met's native collection. The show begins and an announcement is heard. Rocket number nine taking off for the planet Venus. The lyric further informs, zoom, zoom, zoom up in the air, zoom, zoom, zoom way up there. Sun Ra was the stage name adapted by a prolific jazz composer and band leader of experimental music. He was also known for his cosmic philosophies and theatrical performances. Craig Harris, a member of Sun Ra's original orchestra, was the musical director of this concert. He uses the deep sounds of the didgeridoo to welcome the parade of performers to the stage. Nona Hendrix, an original member of La Belle, has had a long solo music career and magisterially leads this ensemble. Her notes on the program indicate that this concert will collapse time, past, present, and future, space and place, inner and outer worlds, traveling via music and the mind to stars, quasars, suns, moons, and delving into black holes. Sun Ra was a pioneer of Afrofuturism, and this amalgam of gifted artists invited the audience to, quote, fly up to the sky on the ship of Ra. The music is rhythmic, almost a tonal jazz, with individual notes in disarray, but also contains a futuristic sound overlay while a beat continues underneath. As I settled into the sound, I found myself concentrating on the messages. The sky is a sea of darkness where there is no sun to light the way. Only fools believe in God we trust. All we are are cosmic dust. Afrofuturism is Afro-present and Afro-past. Not fiction nor science, this aesthetic addresses dreams and concerns of the African diaspora through technology and science fiction. A future stemming from past experiences is imagined. In addition to Sun Ra, the music of Parliament Funkadelic and the Marvel Comics superhero Black Panther are considered seminal Afrofuturistic works. As the show progressed, the physical environs meshed with the accomplished musicianship and otherworldly musings. At one precise moment, the stage was bathed in a gold light. Even the now gleaming silver costumes seemed to be reflecting the sun. The moment was jaw-dropping in its impact. Sitting in a spectacular room beside an ancient Egyptian temple while harnessing the magical godlike powers of the sun god Ra is a once-in-a-lifetime event. The presentation of Nona Hendrix and Disciples of Sun Ra in the temple was utterly serious. They generously invited us to be part of their space world. With messages like, Take the time to be kind, you will find peace of mind, it is easy to recognize the appeal and be drawn into the worldview. We are all just specks in the universe. While we search for universal truth, memories and ashes are all we leave behind. I am feeling very lucky to have been in the right dimension to see this unique and inspiring tribute to the late Sun Ra. 
His wisdom continues to be remembered. The band still tours on the road. Artists such as Miss Hendricks, who was in great voice here, spread the word as dedicated and inspired disciples will do. This show was part of Met Live Arts and is the Metropolitan Museum of Arts program to showcase dazzling and thought-provoking programs within the context of iconic gallery spaces and in their theater. From that opening review, I'd like to ratchet up the surrealism with Mayi Theater Company's production of the play Suicide Forest. Those theatergoers who dare to venture into the ominous-sounding Suicide Forest will encounter and experience both surreal and deeply grounded. The title refers to Aoki Gahara, or Sea of Trees, located at the base of Mount Fuji. In Japanese mythology, this forest has a reputation as a home to ghosts of the dead. Playwright Haruna Lee paints an unflattering picture of society through a completely unpredictable story arc. A painting of Mount Fuji, in all of its majestic beauty, hangs on the wall of Zhang Zheng's astonishing cartoon-like set. Before the play gets underway, a ghost named Mad Mad is walking around. Searching? Collecting? In Lee's play, vignettes are far from literal. The two main characters of this play are Azusa, portrayed by the playwright, and Salaryman, excellent performance from Eddie Toro Ono. Azusa is a 16-year-old schoolgirl. Salaryman is a much older white-collar working man in his 60s. Salaryman discusses a myriad of topics with an unnamed friend. Men are carnivores and meat lovers. Suicide is a coward's way. These men are victims of changing cultural mores, particularly as they concern females. Friend asks, what's up with women these days? Salaryman notes that you cannot even ask that question anymore without being fired. These guys don't want to become part of the new generation of herbivore men. An office lady lets Salaryman know that there are very young girls here to see him. They have come for an interview. Reality turns to fantasy, and perhaps to dreams and nightmares. Office lady flirts aggressively with the older man. Is she young enough for him? This bizarre encounter winds up with her blunt question, What are you thinking of in that disgusting, perverted little brain of yours? Sexual development and the objectification of women is out front and center in Suicide Forest. This topic does not travel down a safe road here. The disturbing view into men and their thoughts and an uneasy but effective revulsion to the disjointed scenes. Are women simply wired to exchange sex for material things? Where is this play going? In a humorous nod to Japanese game shows you may have seen on television, Salaryman will be the unwitting participant in a very public humiliation. That section seems to flesh out the man's unhappiness as a lifelong submissive member of the corporate emasculating machine. Japanese belief systems are definitely on shaky ground here. Haruna Lee's play takes many turns, some of them hairpin, and I will not spoil the intensely personal and vividly realized moments. As an artist, 
Lee is trying to comprehend what it means to be 50% Japanese. Sometimes 33% seems right, other times as high as 70%. I am also, she says, usually a high percentage of American too. There is one scene in this unique play in which goats are climbing a mountain. That part felt overly long to sit through. Most of the staging by director Aya Agawa cleverly embraces the fantastical sweep of the storytelling while allowing the societal observations and personal growth elements to shine. Suicide Forest is not a play for those who have to traverse a linear path. If you are willing to be led into a dark, unknowable sea of trees, surprises, both welcome and unwelcome, will expose themselves. The effect is like emigrating to a foreign country, reconciling drastically different cultures while uncomfortably finding your own place within them. This is meaty, risky, and altogether idiosyncratic theater worth exploring and contemplating afterward. Mayi Theater Company's presentation of Suicide Forest was actually an encore. The show originally was performed at the Bushwick Star in Brooklyn in 2019. And now for something completely different. Company XIV, or Company 14's, production of Seven Sins. Can the biblical tale of Adam and Eve be told in stunning burlesque without upsetting any higher powers? The audience didn't seem to care while soaking up this witty, imaginative, and delectably subversive version. The Devil opens the show with Sam Tinnis's Play With Fire. The lyrics are altered to set the mood as in, My boys like to play with fire. As is usual for a Company 14 performance, things do indeed get hot. Poor Adam is created, but soon thereafter complains of loneliness. A cleverly executed scene produces Adam's rib, the key ingredient for making a woman. Reviewer side note, are we really still teaching this in schools? Dean Martin's If You Were the Only Girl in the World cheekily underscores their duet. Costumes in this show are fantastically bawdy and sparkly. Zane Peelstrom did those. Adam and Eve wear sheer material decorated to look like a nude body over their undergarments. Remember, shame takes them a while to discover. Scott Schneider and Daniel J.S. Gordon were terrific in their roles and atmospheric dances. An elaborate snake dance ensues. The temptation, the bite, the fall. Adam and Eve are cast out of paradise. There are seven paths to hell, seven deadly sins. Now the cast wants to celebrate as we are getting to the pulsating heart of the show. Sinners, a toast to hell. The spirit being conjured is summed up by the follow-up remark. May your stay there be as fun as the way there. After a perfectly timed intermission, Austin McCormick's burlesque extravaganza kicks into high gear. The seven sins are thematically embraced in this ex-warehouse space. The decor is described as Versailles decadence spliced with Prohibition-era dance halls. 
The room can definitely get a little smoky for design effect. And the superlative lighting by Jeanette Osakyu completes the visual picture. If you've never seen Company XIV before, attending is a super stylized and dreamy trip back in time. The performers greet you and are also the bartenders. Different types of seating are available. The show has a few large tables in the middle of the room. These people are served food and drinks. They also get a close-up of some of the action. There is a party-like vibe, but when the lights go down, all eyes are focused on the performers and their impressive skills. Marcy Richardson is a peacock strutting her stuff as vanity. If you have seen her act before, she has a knack for aerial acrobatics while singing opera. This time, she performs L'Elysée d'Amour, The Elixir of Love, by Gattano Donizetti. The troupe's trademark intermingling of musical styles is typically fascinating. Miss Richardson returns later in the show during Greed and delivers the best routine I have ever seen by her. That is saying a lot if you've been lucky enough to catch her act before. Lust is appropriately placed in the middle of the show. In an ensemble piece, two men hang upside down in a full split position from the overhead lighting fixture. This is a brief moment in the show, but it informs the high level of quality. You notice the double lyra in the air when you take your seat. During a jealousy scene, Troy Lingenbach and Nolan McHugh are dazzling on this apparatus. Cab Calloway's Everybody Eats When They Come to My House concludes the gluttony section. A little can-can nods to the Moulin Rouge feel of this nightclub. After all, we are told, everywhere there's a lot of piggies living piggy lives. Funny, sexy, artistic, athletic, musical, breathtaking, and endlessly entertaining, Seven Sins is a perfect introduction to this company. Stay far away if bare buttocks and teasing sensuality offend your delicate sensibilities. Seven Sins was being performed at Teatta XYV in Bushwick, Brooklyn. The show was scheduled to run until October 31st, but obviously has taken a pause in the action due to the coronavirus situation. Our next off-off-Broadway play is more serious. La Construcción del Muro, translated as Building the Wall. Pulitzer Prize-winning dramatist Robert Schenken wrote Building the Wall before Donald Trump won the presidential election. He said, I sense that even during the campaign, real and lasting damage had already been done to this country. The play was released in 2017 and has been performed in 60 cities worldwide. Costa Rica's Teatro Expresivo translated the play into Spanish. La Construcción del Muro is now back on stage in New York after runs in Costa Rica, El Salvador, and Spain. Mr. Schenken released the play in 2017, a day before Trump threatened to paralyze the government if Congress did not clear the way for a border wall. The work is in the genre of speculative fiction. The story is a nightmare scenario made believable through easily drawn comparisons to history. 
This view equates Trump's rise as a symptom of problems with Western democracies where white nationalist and supremacist white ring movements have emerged. You are asked to enter the theater in a straight line. The house is split into north and south with a white dividing line down the middle aisle. Attendees are separated intentionally. The ushers are prison guards. On stage, there are two chairs on opposite ends of a table in some sort of a conference room. A man is escorted in wearing an orange prison uniform. He is wearing handcuffs and takes his seat. Rick is awaiting trial for unspecified crimes committed during the period where he was put in charge of a detainment center in Texas. Gloria is a professor and historian who has come to interview him and uncover the truth. She is not sure what will come of this conversation. In the original play, Gloria was written as an African-American. In this Spanish version, she has been changed to a woman of Latina descent. That alteration seems to add a vital element of outrage and immediacy to an incendiary topic. Rick is a Texan who is part of the downwardly mobile lower white middle class. He struggles to make ends meet for his wife and child. His job in the border detainment camp is going well, and he has increased responsibility. These prisons are profit-making enterprises, so there is significant pressure. He is fiercely anti-immigration, noting, if we don't have borders, we don't have a country. In Mr. Schenken's imagination, the Justice Department was beginning to shut down America's prison industrial complex, but the election changed that direction. After an attack in New York, martial law became law. As Trump said, and this play repeats, there's a lot of bad hombres out there. Before his arrest, Rick was in charge of a stadium which had been co-opted to house illegals and other undesirables. Everything was fine, he says, before the sanitation problem. This dystopian fantasy is not especially shocking since the imagined scenarios are grotesque exaggerations of current events. In 2020, cages are in use at the border. The Nazi parallels are obvious. When the conflicting passions of these two characters finally collide, their anger and disbelief register strongly. If America displays how immigrants are treated, who would want to come here now? That's a bleak picture for sure. In this production, directed by Natalia Marino, voiceover quotes by Donald Trump heighten the plausibility of the story. When children's pleas on an actual 2018 tape are played, it is hard to reconcile a nation which pompously crusades itself as a model of Christianity. A question is posed very early in the play. What makes history change? Is it the academics, science, or people? Rodrigo Duran and Magdalena Morales are actors from Costa Rica and Guatemala, respectively. Their solid and nicely controlled performances highlight their characters' intense convictions. By the play's end, they shine a blinding spotlight on an immoral future state which doesn't seem impossible. The play is performed in Spanish 
with English supertitles. There are quite a few distractions in the production, including video projections of the interview. Overhead lights in the conference room changed positions and brightness, but I was unable to determine why. The ideas were enough to tension to hold my interest. When leaving the theater, I wondered how audiences throughout the world digested this material. La Construcción del Muro was written in 2016 as dystopian fiction. From the perspective of 2020, is it? Your observations of current events will likely inform the gradient of your answer to that question. Another off-off-Broadway play that explores the immigrant experience in a wildly different way is Two Can Play. The phrase, two can play at that game, implies retaliation against an act of deception, deceit, or harm. In Trevor Roan's enormously satisfying comedy, two characters engage in a game of wits. Survival is one theme. Surviving a 20-year marriage. Managing to live in a world which has become a gun battleground. Poverty and joblessness are suffocating. Dreaming for a better life in America. Aspiring to being a woman who is more than a domesticated slave. The flavor is Jamaican, but the targets are universal. Jim and Gloria are attempting to sleep in their Kingston home. Gunfire is ablaze outside, which is nothing new. Elderly Pops is in the back room coughing. Jim is completely paranoid. He is nervous and on edge. Gloria suggests he take more Valium. This play takes place in the 1970s. Despite the tensions and horrors of life in this lower middle class income neighborhood, the tone is 100% situation comedy. The foibles and tribulations of a couple after their children have fled the coop for better pastures in America. All three kids are now illegal immigrants there. Son Andrew sends a letter home. Jim is fearful about his children being caught. Uncle Sam is a bitch. Him have satellite up in the sky can read numbers on dis house. Imagine how Jim's worries would escalate with 30 years of additional and more invasive technologies. His other son, Paul, has three jobs. Dad's reaction is, God bless America. Pops dies in the first scene. Jim and Gloria hatch a plan to emigrate to the United States. We have to go to Uncle Sam. In classic comedy fashion, they will bicker over money, which is very tight. Jim notes that Gloria is spending too much on war paint, which could buy extra food. She retorts, you still have money for your cigarette, though. Gloria appears smarter and more resourceful than her domineering husband and is learning to gain power in the relationship. Today, she witnessed a man selling a puff for 10 cents. Gloria invests in a carton and negotiates with her husband. Jim reluctantly pays $1.50 for a cigarette. He then asks for a match. That'll be another 10 cents. The scene is a small one, but nicely demonstrates the state of their relationship. Through all the dangers and disappointments in their lives, they have managed to survive to this point with their classically humorous and recognizable identities. While this Jamaican couple is drawn as a stereotype, that is clearly playwright Trevor Roan's intention. 
These two are prototypes of similar dreamers everywhere. There are tons of laughs written into this comedy, which is being revived after a 1985 New York premiere. Gloria's frustrations are a common one even today. She knows her husband is seeing someone else on Tuesday nights. You can't manage your homework properly, yet you take it on extracurricular activity. The two are aligned, however, in escaping their increasingly embattled homeland for the promise of America. We laugh with them due to their personalities, but the urgency registers regardless of the humor. Another satisfying layer of two can play is the emergence of Gloria as a woman. She's discovering that her servitude needs to change. She is no longer property to lend, lease, or rent. Her adventures in this play are thoroughly enjoyable. When she realizes the only thing holding her marriage together is crisis, her transformation blossoms. The play nicely builds a believable story arc despite the wildly entertaining comedic escapades. Joyce Sylvester and Michael Rogers are terrific as Gloria and Jim. Their chemistry has the appropriate lived-in feel. They both know how to expertly land a joke, and they each have an abundance of them. Their oversized facial expressions are truly hilarious. Director Clinton Turner Davis wisely turns up all the dials to showcase this play as a big and very broad comedy. These two characters could easily carry a television series. You love their imperfections. You want to hear about their desires. And finally, you root for their ultimate success, whatever that will mean. Two Can Play was a production of the New Federal Theater and was performed at the Castillo Theater. The next production I reviewed was performed at The Tank. One of the artists who collaborated on the piece wrote me and asked me to review it. Here is my review of Cinco: A Myth of the Brain. The brain has been studied for centuries. Cinco: A Myth of the Brain is a performance art piece that ponders that fact in a personal way. The brain adapts, molds, and transforms. One of the four young women says, all of this I've been obsessed with, so obsessed with. The four lobes of the brain are covered in this meditative exploration. The temporal lobe is in charge of language. Cleverly, the show begins with, maybe it's the first thing you recall that starts building a language. The ladies then alternate snippets of the first things that they remember as a young child. My turtle, Leo, had a name which was based on a television program. This detail later elicits a laugh as she recounts all of her turtles up through Leo 7. When the thoughts are sharply detailed, Cinco is at its most effective. My apology in advance for the pronunciation that's about to happen. Isabella Utskategui created this piece in collaboration with her co-performers, Sofia Figueroa, Anna Moioli, and Sofia Sam. With backgrounds from Venezuela, Brazil, and Peru, the languages of their own histories are addressed. I have to give up part of myself to speak English. The English language is considered very chewy and makes my brain go slightly faster. Emotions are definitely for Spanish. 
Hearing foreign languages interspersed throughout the show brings these storytellers to life. Most of the dialogue spoken is in short segments. There is some vivid imagery developed, such as equating one's mind to mirrors and windows. The occipital lobe controls sight and illusions. One compliments she likes the color of another's blue shirt, but it's green. It looks blue. It's yellow, concludes a third person. The show is also a playful study on our brains, what makes us similar, and what makes us different. Directed by Attilio Rigatti, Ventisinko flows easily between proclamations, questions, insight, and movement. The lighting designed by Arsolia Santo is particularly fascinating in its variation in choreography. Most of the effects are handheld by the cast. There is a feeling of analysis and of illumination. The staging and visual impact add a nice layer of mystery. We know what we know, and we don't know what we don't. This is my dream body, is said during the segment which covers the frontal lobe. What followed caught me by surprise. Wouldn't it be great, we are asked, to have a second brain, a reserve heart, that would just drop down into place when the first one breaks? Memorable writing is a strength of this show. Clocking in at 45 minutes, Vantisenko is probably long enough for now. There is a distant, lecture-like quality to this dreamlike excursion into the brain. I found myself wanting to know more about these women, which is a good sign that they drew my attention into their vision. If each person had a short monologue or two, that could potentially allow us to get emotionally attached to their exploration rather than primarily intellectually. Chinquanta might be a nice follow-up piece 25 years from now. What makes artists tick and want to create is usually interesting, and as is the case in this unique production, often entertaining. Veintisinco was the last performance I got to attend live in March before the coronavirus epidemic here in New York City shut down uh, non-essential activities. I was asked, though, to review a podcast which is coming out on April 15th. Here is an original new musical, Monotony, the Musical. Avid theatergoers who are sequestered at home amidst the coronavirus crisis may find themselves bored. Along comes an uncannily well-timed new show that bears the name Monotony the Musical. Unlike some of the other theatrical streaming events popping up every day, this one will be released as a podcast on April 15th. Sarah Lurie wrote the books and lyrics for this show. While working in an office in 2008, she jotted down her frustration. This monotony will be the death of me is the opening line for the song Death of Me. The setting is an accounting firm. Herbert Hanlow III is experiencing life in a cage. A brown bag lunch provides an hour's solace at best. Herbert's deceased father wanted him to be an accountant, and he listened. Ten years have passed, and he's got a diversified 401k and nothing to retire for. The tone for this show is set early. There are plenty of office jokes and clever accounting terminology weaved into this original new musical. Phones and faxes 
are the only thing that makes you know there's something outside. Herbert's best friend, Marnie, is the office manager who sings about making sure the staplers always stay packed. Her mother chastises her with, You spend your entire day with men. No wonder you're out of sorts. Monotony begins in a vein of musical comedy light before plunging into a melodramatic forest, albeit with a crafty, some might even say campy, structural device for its storytelling. Herbert works for Mr. MacGyver, the firm's owner. He has a crush on the son of his boss, a comic book writer named Theo. It is easy to guess that father and son are at odds over this career choice. The Son You Need contains the line, You are an asset that I appreciate despite the cost. I have to admit that I heard the influence of You'll Be Back from Hamilton in that melody. Remembering Jonathan Groff stopping the show as King George III brought a smile to my face. We all need that now. There is even a number called The Accountant's Dance. Since this is a podcast, you will have to choreograph that one in your head. Counting is involved, such as one foot in, one foot out. An even better idea is to go to YouTube and watch the original Turkey Lurkey Time from the musical Promises Promises to glimpse an office party gone wild, 1960s style. Monotony has seven episodes, which average 20 to 25 minutes long. After leaving the office in the first episode, the trials and tribulations of its appealing young characters take center stage. Herbert oversleeps one morning and sings, I'm late, with brass accompaniment that recalls theme songs from old James Bond films. Many tunes become dirges, such as, Woe is me. If you listen closely, however, some lyrics are bone dry and quite funny, such as, Here I am, barely existing at all, like a five o'clock shadow or a urinal stall. This musical continues headfirst into late 20s, early 30s angst, career dissatisfaction, divorce, both parents and children, mom's new boyfriend who happens to be daughter's co-worker, peanut butter and jelly sandwich adoration, a very sweetly rendered gay romance, some ponderous philosophical musings, including this proclamation. I give myself permission to stop living for others. What is very effective in Monotony is the use of an unusual narrator to add a documentary flair and some welcome humor. That part is well-voiced by Ted Makovsky, who also doubles as the boss. Herbert's relationship with his dead father is nicely developed with some thoughtful emotional twists emerging from the overly heavy drama. There are stock characters populating this musical for sure, as played by Amahed Weinberg, the smallish row of Bodhi somehow managed to make me laugh out loud despite the recognizable broad caricature. Monotony is an old-fashioned musical targeted to a younger audience. When it tips into absurdity and surprises, the show is at its most interesting. Jared Chance Taylor's music is often pleasant, but the accompanying vocals are, to be honest, very mixed in execution. While millions of us sit at home with a depressingly escalating virus all around us, a little monotony might be just what the doctor ordered. Take a chance and see if you agree with the observations from my seat.
Monotony the Musical will release its podcast on April 15th, 2020, and a link can be found on their website, www.monotonythemusical.com. For my last entry this month, Cybertank Episode 1, which was titled, How Do We Choose Community Over Despair? With all of the theaters closed, more and more websites and theater companies are taking their works online. Some are free and some have paid subscriptions. I frequently attend productions at The Tank, an off-off-Broadway arts incubator. They have just started a weekly series called Cyber Tank. The first episode is appropriately themed, How Do We Choose Community Over Despair? Christian Roberson is the host. He also submitted a documentary-style hip-hop video about art and racism. The mood is very casual and apologetic as the team fumbles through the early stages of this venture. I found myself inspired by each contributor's passion to share feelings and art during this time of isolation. The experiment and process is to create an e-home for emerging artists. Like the tank itself, the range covers many disciplines. Kev Berry just lost his job in a restaurant. He has begun writing a document called For the Sake of Heaven. The plan is to capture this thing on a day-to-day basis. He then reads his entry from day two called Adjustments and Curry. Ibeth Otero filmed a short belly dancing video. The mood was dreamlike and gauzily lit. Suzelle Palacios, who I recently saw in Birthday in the Bronx, followed with a sonnet. She also implored artists to find ways to express their art. She suggests trying something you haven't done before. The encouragement of expression drives the feeling of community evident throughout this episode. Emery Schaefer presented a tape segment from his play, A, My Name is Allison. Three friends have a game night, and Allison comes to one of them. She's a doozy. On a monthly basis, Ian Halliday hosts Necromancers of the Public Domain. This program takes an old book from the New York Public Library and creates a one-night low-budget variety show. This month's book was 1921's New York, the Nation's Metropolis. She tells us, So I wrote this yesterday at 5 o'clock. A tune follows with pictures and humor. Ron Ja was inspired to take an 18-day trip, talk to strangers, and create a travelogue. In her segment, storytelling is set to a piano accompaniment. Nikki Nup follows with a transgender-themed pop song and a fun homemade music video. The opening line is memorable. Is who you are reflected in a stranger's eyes? As we can never truly escape the abominations of the White House occupants, a section from the Melania Trump Roadshow is played. Lauren Lojudis portrays the First Lady. The segment is titled Fashion Police of Politics. Shame on him for those eyebrows. Made me laugh out loud. Poet Mike Fresentesi came next. He began a bi-monthly poetry reading series at the Tank. The third show was canceled due to the virus. He shares his poem about climate change. Constantine Jones has written a manuscript called The Gut. It is one long poem separated into distinct movements. Three selections highlight his project, and you feel drawn into his creative process and thoughts. Slideshow particularly stood out for me with the promising opening, 
all the things I'd like to be. Finally, Julia Knobloch concluded the episode with three recently written poems. Her themes were the dark legacy of the Nazis, getting older, and the search for a place which bore the title Los Angeles. Mr. Roberson reminds viewers that the tank, like all smaller nonprofits, will be struggling financially through this period. Donations are encouraged. The Venmo accounts for most of the artists are also noted in the upper left hand of the video. If you enjoy a performance, a tip can easily be shared from your seat. I look forward to the next batch of experimentation and sharing. The Tank is an off-off-Broadway theater and arts incubator, which typically puts on a thousand shows annually, working with over 2,500 artists across many disciplines. New episodes are scheduled to go live on Tuesdays at 4 p.m. Eastern. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Theater Reviews from My Seat. This is typically where I talk about some of the upcoming things I'm planning to see in the following month and record on next month's podcast, but that's a little premature. Hopefully um, there'll be some more online things that I can talk about and share and uh, keep my brain busy while isolated here in New York City. If you have any comments or suggestions, I'd love to hear them, especially if you're looking for me to review a specific online show or would like to be considered for a featured interview in the future, please send an email to theaterreviewsfrommyseat at comcast.net. You can also sign up for an email subscription to receive all reviews as they are published at www.theaterreviewsfrommyseat.com. I hope you all stay safe and get through this crisis, and I look forward to sharing my theater-going experiences with you when things resume back to normal. Take care of yourself and your loved ones, and have a great day.